Welcome to our podcast series, AGG Talks Cross-Border Business, in which we discuss legal issues impacting inbound and outbound foreign investments with experts in the field. My name is Mike Burke. I'm a corporate partner with AGG in the Washington, D.C. office, and I'm thrilled to be joined by John Kettle, who's a partner in Gaydens, an Australian law firm. John, you're based both in Brisbane and Sydney? Yes, I'm unusual background, Mike. I live in Brisbane, but work in Sydney. My wife's from Brisbane, and I relocated here 10 years ago, as you can guess from my accent, from uh, working as a partner and leading international practice in a big Irish law firm, Mason Hayes and Curran. All right. Well, we were just talking about the U.S. Talk a moment about Australia's life sciences sector. Punch is well above its weight. It has, right? So Australia has an agency called the CSIRO, which has been around for many decades, and basically which is an innovation research organization, which has developed some world-leading technologies, which has resulted in companies which are, you know, market caps of tens of billions of dollars, and that's US dollars like CSL and so on, right? Which are world leaders in pharmaceutical treatments, You've got therapeutics, diagnostics, you've got cochlear on ears. Australia developed the cervical cancer vaccine. So what that's encouraged are clusters of excellence, I would call them, around research and development into life sciences. And one of those, as our example, is in Brisbane, in the Burkhofer Center. And uh, you've got agencies which have grown up around that life sciences, Queensland. But it attracted contributions or donations, uh, very significant ones from the likes of Chuck Feeney, who yeah. a lot of your listeners would be familiar with, like a global philanthropist, great guy, happens to be a great Irish-American as well. So that has resulted in a global renown and reputation for life sciences coming out of Australia, right? And that has no reverse gear in it. But Australia, as I've said earlier, it's 25 million people. So whilst it's wealthy, it's not deep and wide in terms of population. So the available pools of capital, which like to invest in life sciences, are more likely to be in the United States in all reality. So what happens is that these good Australian life sciences companies will often, they may develop early stage in Australia, they may get some early funding in Australia, like mom and pop money, seed capital. They may even get series A, B, but really they will often flip up into the United States, look to partner with appropriate VC slash ultimately private equity if they get big enough and there's an app there. They will engage in trials, both in the United States and in Australia. And also the flip side is because Australia has this knowledge and awareness around life sciences, some US life sciences companies also come down here, right? Depending upon the niche or what exactly they want to do. So there is a two-way street here, but the Australian life sciences ecosystem is attractive to the United States and really vice versa. Yeah, good potential capital flows between the two again. I think so. And also, you know, what will happen is some of them will redom yep. into the United States 
right? Yeah, we've done a couple of those. Yeah, where the it's the investor's condition of closing is yeah flip up, and then ultimately the exit will be it could be trade sale or it could be yeah. you know a listing on Nasdaq. Yeah, even though right now that particular avenue is is not not robust. It, not robust for the next twelve months. Yeah, uh, but they're never closed forever. The capital markets, right? <laughs> Everything is swings and roundabouts. Right. And and I'm sure. Some folks who are listening will appreciate the NYSE has really ramped up its uh, efforts to get foreign listers on the exchange there. Uh, John Tuttle, yeah, you know, been really active in that. Uh, and what I would say is that you know, Australian uh, business in this space is familiar with the route. Yeah. So if you got an American sort of fund or corporate in the life sciences sector looking to execute on Australian sort of targets and to you know engage in the strategy we've just talked about, you're not dealing with babes in the wood. There would be a familiarity and understanding of, of how it works and what it means. Right. And my experience, because I mentor a number of them in Australia, is that I suppose if they talk to people like me, that helps to condition them for what's coming next. Right. Well, I do the same in, in Ireland and Northern Ireland. And, you know, oftentimes the first yes. piece of advice is get your corporate books in order. Because get, get your corporate books in order. This is what it's going to look like. Yeah. Uh, the style of doing business in the States can be different, but but I'm going to tell you that in advance so there are no surprises when you ultimately execute on a deal or an investment or, or do, your, do your trials agreement, whatever it is over there. And understanding that sort of the makeup, the, both the size and, and the, the composition of your stakeholder group changes. Yeah. That's sometimes for, for companies, it's a, it's a bridge too far for them yes. to manage. But yeah. But often I take the view, right? Uh, 10, 50, 60% of something is better than it. That's right. 100% yeah. of nothing, Mike, right? So Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a it, founder's it, dilemma quite often. Well, I know. And, and you were talking about the centers of excellence. One thing I kind of noticed, too, is that to the extent some of these companies are, are university spinouts, the universities, when it comes to follow on investment, know the lay of the land. You know, the universities are invested and they, they don't understand what they've got and they feel guilty about taking money from overseas. Yeah. If someone's offering money, they shouldn't feel guilty about it, Mike, is my view. Take the money. The question is, take the money, and why isn't it more, right? So My valuation's way off. In terms of the Australian economy, it's relatively stable. Do you see threats on the horizon? I think it's relatively stable. So what underwrites the Australian economy traditionally has been the extractive industries, as you mentioned in part one, right? So it's mining, so that's iron ore. Coking coal, not to be confused with thermal coal. Coking coal is what you use to make steel with iron ore. It's base metals, precious metals. Uranium. And the critical minerals, which is the likes of your vanadium, nickel, cobalt, and so on. And not forgetting copper, although copper is plentiful elsewhere. But you've got all these extractive industries since the 19th century, late 19th century, and the development of BHB have underwritten the Australian economy, along with agriculture, not so not so prolific now, but still highly relevant. There are still a lot of beef exports, funnily enough, to the United States, but more niche products. And you got a lot of your listeners will be familiar with Australian wine and the like too. Um, 
you've got a smaller tech scene and that naturally comes we're in the 21st century so unsurprising you got the life sciences and then you've got a burgeoning financial services sector and a lot of our listeners will be familiar with Macquarie Bank who are significant and serial investors in the United States along with lots of other places and know how to deploy capital with purpose efficiently with a return across the world probably no better people to deal with. They are smart people, right? Yep. So so Australia has a lot of talent. It has a lot of what the world wants. Yeah. So the way I often describe Australia to, to, to American listeners, right, um, and, and business people, is um, think... Uh, and, and Queensland as well, but but think of it a, a bit like it's Florida, Texas, and Southern California Old. rolled into one, right? Because you've got a lot of capital in Florida and Miami and a bit of a, um, yeah, which makes it, and it's got good climate. Mm-hmm. Texas is rocks, crops, steers, and beers, right? So it's a bit, there's a bit parts of West Australia, yep. Queensland like that. Southern yeah. California, He's got the surfy dude culture, so Australia has plenty of that. And then you got a lot of capital out of Sydney, Melbourne, and so on on top of it, sitting on top of it. Not quite New York, but in its own way, very important. So Australia has this um, consistency yeah. of, I would say, wealth generation. And that is further underwritten by the fact that the population grows by about 2% every year guaranteed with migration uh-huh. so australia um i traditionally would, would have thought of as being england in the sun with american characteristics right to use another expression yep. and it is a bit like that because it's very anglo-celtic in heritage which which doesn't really disappear because the institutions the parliament the court system it's common law the language uh some of the sense of humor is very anglo and celtic at the same time right probably closer to irish than yeah plus anything else a lot of the listeners from say from georgia and and some of the southern states might might understand the politics is can be quite similar if they were to look at it right um so it is it is an island of consistency and well creation in the pacific yeah and do I think there's going to be any material change? No, no. The, the, the dial moves a bit now and again. Here and there. We got 4% unemployment. Even in the bad times, that might go to 6.5%, right? Yeah. But you've got this wave of migration, and Australia has very strict migration uh, standards or thresholds. Yeah. So it's very, it, it focuses on what's called skilled migration. And because it's an island, it's a hard place to get to so it's a difficult place to get into unless you're coming with skills or capital. It takes a lot of refugees, but the refugees have to come from UN-endorsed uh, camps, yeah. wherever the UN runs them. E-camps, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so, so that's the way Australia runs, and it's a popular place. So your population is 25 million today, so it's going to put on four to 500,000 every year for the next decade, right? So you're going to be a 30 million by the time of the Brisbane Olympics in 2032. 
And what there's an interesting number I've read about, once you hit 32 to 33, 34 million people, your economy becomes much more self-sustaining. And that makes it more attractive. Yeah, self-sustaining on top of self-sustaining in, in that case. It, it, indeed. And listen, there's a lot of land here. Yes. So Australia is a very thinly populated country. <laughs> yeah. Like it's basically five city states. You've got Brisbane in mid-east coast. You've got Sydney, thousand uh, at 800 miles to the south another thousand miles on is melbourne another 800 miles on is adelaide and another 1500 miles away is perth right and that's it yeah well that's not it that's disrespect there are other cities and towns but they're not as big right and canberra which is the state which is the federal capital is a bit like dc but it's an administrative capital the way DC is, yeah. right? It's not, it's not an industrial capital. No, it, it definitely, yeah, DC very much is, you know, the government spins out. No, I just, I remember somebody once told me that there was a fence to keep the dogs in. Rabbits. 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 How big is that? And they said it's the size of Italy. The fence, oh, I think it goes down. Yeah. Sort of size of the country, Mike. It goes down the middle somewhere, right? It, it, there are some predators or some animals, species, sorry, some species, which are not native to Australia. And rabbits were a problem. Yeah. Was it the emus that... that... Well, they just they just carried disease, which was not good for the native, uh, some of the native populations of animals. So they had to do something with them and they had to go... Um, they had to go someplace, not yeah. Yeah, and I think I think it's very difficult to get rabbit on the menu now as a consequence yeah. in in Australia. They were did a very good job at eradicating them, and so they have what's called these things rabbit-proof fences stop the rabbits proliferating. Well, the rabbits have a reputation well earned for, for proliferating like that. But yeah, as lawyers, we always love horror stories, right? When they do something that's you know, you got to unwind. You know, do you see common mistakes that American companies make approaching the Australian market? I'm not sure a lot of Americans appreciate the size, you know, that it's farther from, but is it farther from Sydney to Perth than it is New York to Los Angeles? So, yes. And so, for instance, the nearest city to Perth is Singapore yeah. Yeah. and not Adelaide. Yeah. Right. So it's an isolated country, but with its, with a disproportionate amount of the world's natural resources. Yeah, the lucky country. Um, so it's it, it's the lucky country. Um, but what 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 would uh, foreign sort of business people fail to appreciate about Australia? And like any country, you gotta pay attention to some local cultural nuances in doing business. Yeah, and often. Well, I tell my juniors here when I'm talking about international business, particularly with the United States, is that sometimes American business can be quite abrupt in the way it, it corresponds. And I've been working with the United States for 30 years, so I am used to that. But what I do tell my colleagues is don't get upset by sometimes a degree of brusqueness or abruptness in, in written communication or calls. It's not personal. But a lot of people, a lot of your clients, a lot of your listeners are engaged in fast-moving business. Yeah. yeah. So the niceties, sometimes um, there isn't the time for yeah. the chat about the football or the cricket or whatever it is. Yeah. And in certain parts of Australia, sometimes you need to talk about the football, the, the Australian rules football or the rugby league yeah. or the cricket 
for rapport basis. And I, I'd say that's sometimes, and I, but I find that in lots of lots of different jurisdictions there are there are some local things you need to pay attention to which which if you do that that five minutes spent engaging is gets a much better outcome yeah. at the yeah. end and it sort of speaks to you know one other thing you and i have encountered separately in terms of ireland which is not every english-speaking nation we're not all the same in terms of business we're, culture can be very different we're not all the same um you know a lot of business likes going out late at night Yep. Australia actually doesn't do that. It doesn't stay out late at night necessarily. Um, they like getting up really early. Yeah. So Australians, a lot of them will like, they like starting their email traffic and so on at 6 a.m., which is quite handy if you're in continental United States because it suits the time zone. Late nights, they don't like doing so much. Early mornings, they do. It's those little things which, which I was even surprised by coming here. Well, John, I think that's uh, our time for volume two of, of our talk about Australia. I'd like to thank you again for speaking with us today. And John, if listeners want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? The details are on the website, www.gatens.com. My email is john.kettle at gatens.com. Well, I'm also happy for people to contact me directly on my mobile or through LinkedIn. I'm quite happy. And that is plus 61419-646-379. And happy to take a call anytime in, in conjunction with you, Mike, or however. That's perfect. John, thanks a lot. Also to our listeners for your patience today. And again, my name is Mike Burke, and this is AGG Talks Cross-Border Business and a great episode with John Kettle talking about the Australian market and Trans-Pacific Business Relations. Thank you.